Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. <laughs> I'm Tim. I almost said talking music, because that's kind of what we're going to be doing. I thought your rhythm was just a little off, because we haven't done this in a while. That also, yeah. Nice, uh, uh, that was a good pun, by the way. Working rhythm in, you know, music. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're going to continue our look at the Beatles films this episode. I'm done saying this week or this month or whatever, because <laughs> <laughs> it seems to just change from episode to episode, so... Anyway, so last time we talked about Hard Day's Night and Help, and this time we're going to talk about the, well, technically they had three more films, including the uh, Let It Be documentary, but we're going to look at the the other two fictional films, let's say, Magical Mystery Tour and Yellow Submarine, but before we get to that, there's a whole bunch of things that we could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I know you had something you wanted to discuss. I don't know. You, oh, you did sent you, me a message. Did you read that link? I did. I actually didn't because uh, when I then, saw it, then okay. We can talk about it another time. <laughs> okay. The, well, the, the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, did, you know, every so often somebody does a list of like, oh, the hundred greatest movies, and like some of them are, you know, somewhat significant. Like Sight and Sound does their poll every 10 years. They've been doing mm-hmm. it since 1952. Um, AFI. Yeah, and AFI is... But this is, like, the Hollywood the Hollywood Reporter just pulled, like, all these people who, like, work in the industry. People who make movies and make TV shows. And, like, the headline or whatever said something like, who better to decide what's best than the people who make them? And you read the list and it's like, no, they're the wrong people to decide. What was but, number one? Oh, what was number one? The Godfather, which that's fine. Okay, yeah, it's pretty standard. <laughs> no, oddly enough, uh, in light of you know our recent episodes, number one hundred on the list of one hundred greatest films was Seven Samurai. One hundred. Wow. Yeah. Not... Beaten by I think Back to the Future was in the top twenty. And Back to the Future is a fine film. It is very entertaining. Very... I don't think it's one of the twenty greatest films ever made, though. I you know I mean. There are so many different ways to measure the worth of a film. Com- trying to compare something like Seven Samurai <laughs> and Back to the Future is like... It, there's not even any point to doing that, really. But it, it's an interesting list because it, it is just, like, people who work in the industry, mm-hmm. basically. And, like, it's they, interesting to see, like, what they think is great. What was the What was the polling technique? Was it just like, oh, list your top ten favorite films? They didn't and really they, go into that, which is weird. See, because that, that affects the, the yeah. way that you look at it. And especially it. if they have them number them, like sending your top 10 numbered 1 to 10 or right. something and like that. Right, and then it's weighted, you know? Yeah. Or it could just be like, oh, give us a list of your top 10 films. And then it's like, all right, well, the the most common 100 films that were listed mm. are this. And it's like ranked. But if it was done that way, I would be shocked because... I can't imagine that Back to the Future would be so high if it was done like that. And they're also, I, I, I find it hard to believe that there were no ties. Because, like, sometimes in lists like this, you know, you'll have, like, your top 10 or something, and then, like, you have three ties for 11, and then, like, go, there were six different movies that made number 27. And hmm. I remember um, for Sight and Sound, their 2002 list, it only went to, like, 88. 
I think because there were several ties. Mm-hmm. So they had a hundred. Well, they had over a hundred films. Right. Because there were so many like ties, but. But yeah, that it was. It is kind of silly to arbitrarily say like just one hundred. Like, why can't it just be like okay, yeah, list your top ten favorite films, and then like whatever the number is, like these are all the films that people had mentioned, you know. And if one person that says Back to the Future out of like however many, then yeah, Back to the Future winds up on the list like at the bottom or whatever. But I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know what the best way to do it would be to determine. You what you'd want, what you'd have to do actually compile all of those various lists into one master list and somehow figure out a way to weight them all properly. Then you'd have like almost like the truest kind of average that you could get in a way. But then it would be kind of skewed because, like, the AFI list, for instance, only takes into account American films. And there's all this different criteria they have to take into account. Like, it had right. to be a film that had already been, like, awarded something or recognized or something like that. You couldn't just say, like, I think this is a great American film. Because mm-hmm. they'd step in and be like, oh, but nobody cared about Actually. it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I don't know. It's There's so many different ways to 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 list films and, yeah. and weight them and compare them and stuff that i mean yeah ferris bueller was on there too yeah I, ferris bueller's day off <laughs> beat seven samurai yeah that's crazy i mean that's what that is what's funny about the list if seven samurai is like as, as the bottom yeah then like, like literally that's, everything that's else that's point. on the list is <laughs> somehow or supposedly like greater than I mean, you can say, like, you know, this is a list of the, like, when you say that the top greatest films, like, that kind of is different than, like, the best films Mm. or, you know, whatever. Because, I mean, the greatest films could mean many different things, like the most beloved, you know, the most Mm. well-known, the most uh, critically acclaimed, the most uh, biggest box office, you know, I mean, like, there's there's so so many different kinds of ways to judge, like, the, the worth or the what makes a film great you know and it's like some people like who get the the, um like the ballot or whatever like to fill out they they could think like oh what are my favorite films which that's very different than what i think like what i think my favorite films are (laughs) it's very different what i think the best films are yeah definitely um and some people are very different make that kind of distinction you know And it goes all the way to like you know the Academy Awards, like when you're asked to choose, like, oh, what was your favorite perform, or what do you like, what do you think the best performance was? That's different than saying what was your favorite performance mm. or what was your, you know, what do you think deserves it the most? Those are all three very different kinds of criteria, but everyone is is voting. Everyone who is voting is sort of picking their own sort of lens to to view it through. Mm. So you know. There's never going to de- be a definitive answer of like these are the, the top 100 films or top 10 or. And it was interesting after um, the most the 2012 sight and sound list, um, there was like a a message board. Different people who had contributed to the list were talking about like their methods for picking their list mm. and the way that is like everybody sends in a top 10 list. And, uh, like, different people were saying, like, well, I wanted to pick, like, I didn't want to have more than one film per director, and I didn't want to have more than, like, one film per uh, decade. Another person was like, I didn't want to have more than one film per country. Right, right. And it's like, 
So yeah. every, totally different criteria for yeah. everybody. And like it, that's healthy for like creating a canon because once a film gets on one of those lists, everybody's like, oh, well, I should check out that film. But I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm looking at the Hollywood Reporter list right now. The top 10 that they have listed here, just for, you know, shits and giggles, I guess. Number 10 is Schindler's List. Nine is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Eight, E.T. Seven, Godfather Part Two. Six, Casablanca. Five, Pulp Fiction. Four, Shawshank Redemption. Three, Citizen Kane. Two, Wizard of Oz. And one, The Godfather. I haven't seen Schindler's List, but as far as the other one, uh, other ones go, they're all good movies. Yeah, I I like all of those movies. Yeah, uh, Back to the Future is number twelve, by the way. Yeah. Shawshank. Uh, People, everybody loves Shawshank, and like, yeah, I like it. It just it surprises me that it's just. I don't know. It's held in such high esteem. Yeah, it's held the uh, the number one spot on IMDb's audience rated list for for I don't even know how long. For as long as the voting has been happening. You see any on there that you're just like, what the fuck is this doing on this list? Yep. Uh, Avatar. Oh yeah, that's right. Avatar is number 67. Um, which in and of itself, like... I mean, if the, you know, if the polls had been handed out the day after the movie was released and everybody was really still high off the experience, mm-hmm. I might have voted that. Because <laughs> I remember walking out of the theater and being like, holy shit! But, you know, then you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I'm not sure if this list is meant to be like, you know... I mean, it seems that way. I was going to say, like, I don't know if it's meant to be like, oh, number one is like higher than the others or if it's just kind of like here's here's a hundred movies but if it was like that then it'd be like an alphabetical order yeah no it's so. it's definitely ranked yeah well anyway <laughs> there's always going to be some new list out there it is interesting to 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 see like or to imagine what films will sort of last you know like i think something like avatar I can't imagine in like 20 years time people looking back on it with much fondness. I mean, I think it's well, the, in, the technological innovations. It's so notable. It's the, yeah. It, yeah. It's definitely notable. And it's, I think, I mean, and right now it is, does hold the record as the highest grossing movie of all time. So like, it certainly is like, you know, but then, then again, that's like the, the criteria of like, you know, well, what are you judging a film at, you know, a great film, you know? That's like, in, in some respect, like Avatar is like one of one of the greatest films ever produced because it is because it changed the way that Hollywood works to an extent. Hmm. You know, so I mean, it's like Around the World in Eighty Days um, from nineteen fifty six. That's I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think that's a terrible movie. It, yeah, it won it. Best Picture at the Oscars that year, and people still like speak fondly of it for some reason. And I think it's mostly just because it when they were making it, they coined the term cameo. Oh. Like, there had been cameos before, but nobody said cameo in reference to it. And it's it's chock full. Like, everybody who was working in Hollywood in the 50s, like, shows up for, like, a brief second. 
like they're they're in a saloon at one point and there's like somebody playing the piano and the camera kind of pans over and the guy turns around and it's Frank Sinatra. He doesn't say anything. He just turns back to the piano and it cuts away. But I, yeah, mean, I mean, like, that's it's amazing. Full of stuff like yeah. that. But it's it's a shitty movie. <laughs> yeah. So. But you know, you'll never see around the world in eighty days like on a list like that. It might have made the AFI list, but that's a stupid list anyway. So. Yeah, because, because it, it won Best Picture. Criteria. So yeah, exactly. But I don't remember if it actually did. Um, there was some sad news recently. Yes, there was. If I'm thinking of the same thing that you're thinking of, uh, Eli Wallach died. Um, again, as we've discussed in the past, like it is sad. I mean, he he was a great actor. Mm. Um, but I mean, he was 98 years old. <laughs> he lived a, to a ripe old age. Um, Taken too young. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's kind of amazing that, you know, he lasted as long as he did. And I, I guess uh, he had gotten pretty good reviews for one of his more recent movies, the, the Wall Street sequel. Um, oh, Money Never right. Sleeps. Yeah, that's right. I didn't it? see that, but... Um, I didn't see it either. He was one of the things that I heard a lot of people talking about after the movie came out. And that was just four years ago. Yeah, so, I mean... Holy cow, I'm... Uh, he's like, very, he's very, like Betty White. <laughs> but, I mean, very, very few people are... can maintain a career in acting into their old age, mm. let alone into your 90s. I mean, that's just... That's insane. And to achieve, you know, some form of critical acclaim as well, it's it's something. Um, for those who may not know Eli Wallach's work, um, probably his most famous role is in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly as Tuco. The Ugly. The Ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it certainly is one of his most memorable performances. He makes that movie in... Arguably, like, he is sort of like the in some way the the thing that really kind of grounds the the movie he's a character that you can like really relate to and kind of latch on to mm. in more more of a way than like Clint Eastwood who's very stoic and kind of impenetrable and Clint Eastwoody and Clint Eastwoody yeah <laughs> and Lee Van Cleef who's just you know an evil bastard yeah so he kind of like is is one of the main driving forces of of that movie and uh yeah, he's a great actor. Um, it's a shame, but again, you know, you got to say like, hey, he lived a yeah. very full, bountiful life, and he was someone he will who, not be forgotten. He, like a lot of people, it, it was kind of hard to like pay attention to him to an extent because he was always in movies surrounded by all these all other these great, people yeah. who, yeah, like I mean, in the Misfits. Um, it was the last film that Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe ever made. And then, mm. and Montgomery Clift was there, like, in the process of, like, like, within six years, I think, he was dead. He was already, like, kind of wasting away after his accident and stuff. And, like, in the middle of it all, it's like, there's Eli Wallach. And he is, like, a main character in the movie, but mm. you're, like, looking at these, like, giants around him. Yeah, he definitely kind of drifts yeah. through. And The um, Godfather Part 3, Godfather Part he's three, in there. Yeah. And, yeah. But, I mean... He started out in, I think his first movie was Baby Doll. He was with, like, 
performing with Carl Malden. What year yeah. was that? 56. 56. Yeah. I think that was his first movie. It was an Ilya Kazan movie, and he was from the actor's studio, so he mm. always used those people. So, yeah. Eli Wallach, Godspeed. <laughs> we, we, just, we just emptied out a little bit of our Colt 45 onto the floor for you. Kind of leading into the true topic of the episode, um, I just wanted to briefly touch on something that I did few days ago i got the closest to seeing some sort of <laughs> musical performance in the realm of the beatles that i have come so far because <laughs> um, i haven't seen uh, paul mccartney live even though i that is definitely on my bucket list hopefully <laughs> that will happen before paul mccartney kicks the bucket but um now i haven't seen ringo star but I can now say that I saw a Lennon live in concert. Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son. John and Yoko's son. Um, yeah, I went to go see Beck perform at Mass Mocha. It was a birthday present that my girlfriend Kayla gave me. And um, yeah, their, Beck's opener was Ghost of the Sabertooth Tiger, which is Sean Lennon's band and i didn't really know what to expect i had heard some of his tracks a while ago and um you know i mean there's this kind of thing with like with the 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 beatles children that's like they kind of have things stacked against them in a way yeah because they have this like this name to live up to and people just kind of go in with um, unreasonable expectations a lot of times I think because they're like oh like let's see if he's as good as his father you know imagine every single like musician ever if like you just like like oh there's a new band we're gonna go see him tonight and see if they're as good as the Beatles yeah exactly <laughs> um, it's just totally unfair really but at the same time it's like someone like Sean Lennon would never be on my radar if it wasn't for the fact that he was, you know, <laughs> John Lennon's son. So, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect. There's this kind of like, I at least was, wanted him to be like, I at least wanted the music to be good. I didn't really care if it was sounded anything like the Beatles or anything like that, because that's just totally, but he does have that voice. Yes. Um, but I at least wanted it to be like not a disaster <laughs> because um, I mean you look you can go online and look at some videos of some of the various Beatles children um, there's Julian Lennon who was kind of the first to break into the music scene as he was like the oldest of the of the, of the one Beatles of my kids. friends when I was growing up like their mom was obsessed with Julian Lennon oh yeah she, ha- I think he only had like two albums, but like, yeah, in the she 80s. had the albums and like all the singles or something, and like she just had posters of, Ju- and it's so weird. Like I don't know anybody else who like, it was like a diehard Julian Lennon fan. Yeah, I don't know, but <laughs> um, yeah, his his had some success. his big hit, the the, which still gets radio play to this day, um, is and I don't even know the the actual technical song, the the title of the song, um, much too late for goodbyes. Yes, it's much too late 
for goodbyes. <laughs> um, yeah, it'll still pop up on the radio um, now and again. Um, but, you know, you look back at, like, the, the critical reception of that, and it still is like, well, it's good, but it's no John Lennon. You know, it's like, you just can never get away from that comparability. it was, like, comparability. two years after he died or something? Yeah, like, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's rough. Um, and then there's uh, Danny Harrison, who has jumped around in a number of different bands. What's crazy about that? I didn't that, even know that. You didn't know that Danny Harrison was a musician, or no, I didn't. If you watch the uh, the concert for George, which was a sort of memorial concert, I think in two thousand two, it was like a year after George Harrison had died, and it was like this. Uh, I think it was like a benefit fundraiser for some cause that. George had been involved in, in some or something like that, but it's it's really really cool um, because there's just all of his like massive group of like musician friends that he had sort of collaborated with over the years, yeah. all coming out and playing his various songs, and it's really really touching and some parts really really you know just sad. I mean, there's this moment when um, Paul McCartney goes out and plays something on a ukulele and it's just heartbreaking and uh Ringo plays uh Photograph which was one of his big solo hits yeah that was co-written by George Harrison they had collaborated with it and um the song takes on a whole different meaning when after you know George Harrison had died <laughs> and like you know somewhat it, the song now is sort of like all I've got is a photograph. Yeah, I realize all... <laughs> you're not coming back. Yeah, all yeah, all I've got is a photograph, and I realize you're not coming back anymore. I mean, it's it's just yeah. I mean, that that concert is great. Um, and the Monty Python guys come out and sing the uh, I can't the their draft. Yeah, they sing the Lumberjack song. And um, what's funny is like it's like all the Monty Python guys come out, which is great because it's like this mini Monty Python reunion yeah. for George Harrison. And they're all dressed as, like, Canadian Mounties. And Tom Hanks is there as one of the Mounties, just randomly. Like, filling in for Graham Chapman? I guess so. And I'm just like, what the hell is Tom Hanks doing there? I don't know what the Tom Hanks connection is, but, yeah. Um, but then I mean, if, if you're... I don't care what level of actor you are. If, if Monty Python calls you, it says, hey, do you want to perform on stage with us? <laughs> At this, sh- like, extravaganza <laughs> with all the, these greatest musicians of all time playing for George Harrison. Like, yeah. Yeah, you don't say no. <laughs> um, but yeah, Danny Harrison uh, plays in this big at, at, in the end, like the big finale. And I can't remember what I think they're they're playing um, "My Sweet Lord," and uh, he he's on stage and he's playing uh, guitar with them. It with, is a he. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Okay, I always because the name it's spelled like the like a girl, right? It's D A N I. Yeah. And it's actually... Um, that always threw me, because I, I was like, I wonder if... Because I've met, or I had met a girl who spelled it that. Well, it was like D-H-A-N-I or something, but she was Indian. Mm-hmm. And I know that George was into that. Right. But I didn't, like... It's actually uh, the two syllables, da-ni, 
are two, I believe, don't, I mean, this is from memory and it's been a while since I've read this, but I'm fairly certain that it's, it's taken from two syllables, Indian syllables that are musical notes, da, ni. Okay. Um, sort of like their, uh, do, re, mi. Um, so we kind of mashed them together and got Donnie. And I don't know if it's actually pronounced Donnie Harrison or Danny. I think people kind of just... Danai. Yeah. Um, but Dani it's insane because, like, at the time of the concert, like, he was of the age of, like, when the Beatles, like, of the age that George was when the Beatles kind of first hit, like, very young. And he looks like a dead ringer. Like, it's insane how much he looks like George Harrison. He must have made everybody very uncomfortable to be on stage with him yeah like, i mean it's like his ghost is there playing like with paul and ringo look over and it's like Ugh. and it, it, they're playing in front of this giant portrait of george when he was that young mm. and it's like it, it's it's insane i mean he looks so much like him that's like at the um at the concert for john that's not what it was called but i don't remember what the name of it was um in 2001 december 2001 um they it, they had Julian Lennon, Sean Lennon, and Rufus Wainwright, just randomly, um, do uh, this boy. This this boy, yeah, because he needed a third person because the harmonies, um, and it's, it was so weird because the voices, mm-hmm. are, especially Sean, are just so close, and like they do, oh, yeah. there is definitely like physical resemblance for sure, but just like the voice, it was just it was ghostly that's another random that kevin spacey was part of it did you watch that no i haven't seen that because it was like tom hanks showing up with monty python it's like kevin spacey came out and sang mind games yeah that's so <laughs> weird because <laughs> it was it was two months after september 11th so it did it had already the event had already been planned but it like took on this kind of political weird awkward thing because it was in new york city also right, right, and, like, right. um so he like proceeded it with like this little like thing about like you know you have to be careful what people are telling you these days and then he like segued into mind games and yeah that's weird to kind of inject that yeah. into this whole thing but <laughs> um but yeah and then so I mean I've heard some of like Donnie Harrison's stuff he's got a band called the New Number Two um and you know it's not bad like poop. I don't like the I, new poop. I don't know. I get or the maybe it's like the new shit. I never even really thought about it, but yeah. Um, and then there's uh, Zach Starkey, who is Ringo's son, and he's a drummer. And I don't know if he's been in like bands or anything like that. I'm Wasn't sure he in the All Star Band for like one tour or something? Probably, yeah. Um, but he's not like you know, in in the limelight very yeah. much. And then there's James McCartney, which I don't know if you've ever. I didn't. I knew about the daughter, who's a like a fashion designer. I didn't right. know about the. There was a son. Paul has a son named okay. James. Is that his son, or was that Linda's? Because I know Linda had a child when they got together, or was like. No, this is like his biological son. Okay. And I'm. I think it was. I think Linda was his mother. And yeah, his name is James, which is actually Paul McCartney's real name. Uh, because Paul was born James Paul McCartney, but he went by his middle name. Um, and yeah, it's kind of it's kind of sad. Like if you go online, like on YouTube, and look at like some of his live 
performances, James McCartney. Um, he just yeah, seems like kind of a, I don't know, strange person. Um, the music isn't really that great, and um, he kind of has this sort of angry attitude about a lot of things, it seems. <laughs> He's like very, uh, like, I don't want to talk about my dad and all this kind of stuff. Um, at least that's my very limited I mean that's understandable. Oh yeah, I mean I, I don't blame anybody would ever talk to him. <laughs> I don't blame him at all. But um yeah, and he's like kind of uh at least when I saw him like he was overweight and bald and just kind of looked like an average Joe. And uh not what you'd kind of expect from you know rock royalty, I guess. Hmm. So going into this this is all around about what I'm saying. Going into the Sean Lennon show, I didn't really know what to expect, and I was hoping that it was good. Thankfully, it was uh, it was really good. Awesome, I would say, actually. Really, really great band, The Ghost of the Sabertooth Tiger. And it was very surreal. I, Kayla and I were, like, in the very front row. So we were, like, as close to the stage as we could be. Um, and... It's strange because I, I had obviously like seen pictures of him before and I knew what he looked like, but holy crap, does he look like John Lennon? It's insane. I mean, like he has like long hair and the beard and the glasses. He's wearing like a hat, and um, he looks like the perfect. Like if you were to take like a photo of John Lennon and a photo of Yoko Ono and kind of like meld their faces together he would look like the perfect fusion of those two. Him and George Harrison must have had really strong genes because it's it's just crazy how much... Because you look at Julian Lennon, too, and, I mean, he looks very similar to the way that John looked later in his life. But, yeah, I mean, the music was great. And, I, I mean, I could tell, like, even in the audience, like, people were kind of like... I could hear chatter around people not knowing what to expect and you know but once they started playing everyone got was like totally into it and was like wow this is this is way better than I was expecting it to be because <laughs> you kind of just expect it to be this kind of like oh like oh you're only a musician because you know you have the name and that's the only reason They're why entitled you... yeah exactly but I mean it could definitely stand on its own two legs for sure did he throw in any, any like covers? No, of John stuff. That's cool. Yeah, I, I mean it would have been cool I, if he did. I wouldn't. But... Have, I wouldn't. I wasn't expecting that because because it is a thing where it's like you want to try to yeah. distance yourself from it as much as possible. But I mean, because usually like when I see him in something, it's in relation to his father, like a benefit or right. like a documentary or something. And, and one thing that I thought was just like strange after on on my on my way home from from the concert and everything as i was thinking back on it i was just thinking like it's so strange like i followed the story of the beatles very thoroughly and you know like i've seen like the whole beatles anthology i've read all these accounts about like their post beatles breakup and all through the 70s listen to all the music know all like the stories you know like john lennon's lost weekend with harry nielsen and like getting you know having sean and dropping out of the music biz to just focus on the family and having those like 
sort of four or five years of like family bliss, you know, and um, <laughs> even like you know, like the song like um, "Beautiful Boy," yeah. written for Sean. I know all that because I followed the story of John, and in that story, like Sean is kind of like a supporting character almost, and then to be like in like we shared a moment you know what i mean like we were in the same place in the same time like and we experienced the same thing going on and it's like somehow like my path has crossed paths with that in a way and it was kind of surreal and like it suddenly became like oh he's not just like a character in this story like he's a real person you know and it's like it's weird to know so much about someone and especially someone's childhood and about this tragic thing that happened to them yeah. you know like because i mean i like a few years ago i remember watching like you know, falling down the rabbit hole on YouTube and like watching like, oh, you want to see like all of like the reaction videos of like when John Lennon was killed and like you can go online and watch like the, you know, new the first interviews that like Paul gave and George and Ringo and Yoko and like their sort of like raw reactions to the Paul interviews on YouTube. Yes. What do you say? Like drag, isn't it? Or something. Well, he and he just got in his car <laughs> but the thing is is like people kind of like like to take that paul interview and and point it at it and say like oh he he didn't even give a shit but like the the it's kind of taken out of context in yeah a way. definitely but i mean like it sucks at that it, like the first public statement right. that he made because he did he spent the whole day like in the studio mm-hmm. with george martin i think right like they were like we need to work on this to like we need to ignore this to like get over this and they were working all day i don't think it was really like that i think it was kind of just like he had spent literally the whole day in that sudden grief and that by the time the interview rolls around he'd had a whole day of like these yeah crazy you know (laughs) roller coaster of emotions and like talking to all of his like you know whoever was close to him around that time and just like dealing with it and then by the time like the 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 press was like and the press had been hounding all day long yeah you know it's like what's your reaction what's your reaction and he just like didn't want to like deal with that and by the time he finally does talk to the press like he's trying to keep his composure like when i watch that video i see like he's really trying to not like break down on on camera so like the best he can do is just kind of like yeah it's it's drag isn't it and it's just like you know it comes off as kind of weird but like i don't think that is i mean when you take that quote out of context and just say like oh paul's reaction to john being shot it's a drag isn't it and it sounds like callous and not caring but like this not of course that's not Yeah, because you don't know how like it's hard to get what's inside of people from these sound bites yeah exactly but But you can watch the interview it's weird to compare them to like the footage of um like after brian epstein died and it showed i don't i don't know if in the anthology it showed like all four of them but at least showed paul and john like surrounded by press mm-hmm. you know because they're always you know so thoughtful of people who are mourning a friend yeah of course <laughs> just shoving microphones in their faces and they just they look so distraught and like i don't know it's, it was <clears throat> Like, they look lost. Like, they didn't know what to do. Because mm-hmm. he'd been kind of, like, guiding them yeah. for the most part. And, I mean, and that's what I, I see, like, in that video of, of Paul. Mm. Um, 
but yeah i mean and then like i've seen you know there's you can see a video of like sean as a little boy like having these news cameras stuck in his face like coming from the funeral or something like that and it's just like it's so strange to know these like such intimate personal details about somebody Mm. um and then kind of like judge them for it or somehow it rolls into your sort of view of that i i can't imagine how difficult it is for for sean lennon i mean nowadays because i'm sure people that's all people want to talk about <laughs> you know it's like how much of how much do you remember of your father like what you know what was it like when you heard the news i'm sure like people ask him those questions even today and it's like i could not deal with that but my memories of the first five years of my life are very uh very vague yeah <laughs> like certain things stick out but i can't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Although I guess if somebody, if I'd been asked for the past few decades, like every day by a bunch of people about the first five years, maybe I'd remember more. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I really enjoyed his, his, his band and his live performance. It was, it was great. Um, so yeah, I'd highly suggest checking out ghost of the saber tiger. It's a shame you had to sit through Beck afterwards. And oh my god, Beck was amazing. I had seen Beck before, um, back in 2003 at SPAC. I saw him at SPAC in 97. Oh, okay. Um, and Beck was Maybe actually was like the sure. first real show that I had seen. I had seen other like Me too. <laughs> shows, but like that was like the first like real sort of big musician that like I was a fan of that I went to go see. Um, and it was kind of strange because at that first show, they, the, they, at the last encore song that he played was devil's haircut. And then going to this show is like 11 years later or something like that. And the, they open with devil's haircut and I'm like, wow, it's like we just picked up right where we left <laughs> off. <laughs> and, um, it was funny too because like that first show was um it was 2003 so they were like like sea change was the latest album that had come out and so there was a somewhat of a focus on that and this show he was playing with the band that he recorded sea change with so he was like we're gonna play a lot from sea change tonight (laughs) so there was like a good amount of sea change um so it was weird because it was like very kind of similar shows but like over 10 years had passed and he was still as good as ever like and i haven't really listened to beck um really in depth as much as i did back then you know yeah i I haven't really like listened to a lot of those classic albums like in a while and really kind of like appreciated them um so watching this show and just like the, the energy and the just amazing songs I, I fell in love with all the songs all over again and just uh it was it was great when i saw him it was between odelay and mutations mm. i think was there something in between them those two albums no i, I think that it, was, it was just those um and so there was a lot of a lot of odelay mm-hmm. and like he and he did loser of course 
Right. Um, did he do Loser with this? Like, is this? Yeah, both, is that... time, both times I've seen okay. him. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, like, I know he's done a lot since then, but that was like the Beck song yeah. for like so long. Um, and he did a couple of songs in like Stereopathetic Soul Manure, which like at that time I was so proud of like, oh, that's one of his indie CDs. I have it. Because <laughs> this is like pre internet. Well, I mean, the internet existed, but you know, nobody had it. So like, I don't know. Um, well, people had it. Nobody I knew had it. Um, but yeah, no, it was great. And he like chugged a bottle of milk. No, a carton of milk at one Ugh. point, which was such a weird. Well, it was, I mean, maybe it wasn't milk in there, but I don't know. And like, um, Elliot Smith and Ben Folds five opened for him. Wow. And it was just, it was a great fucking show. Yeah. That sounds great. What's funny is that first Beck show that I saw, he had two openers, uh, dashboard confessional and the black keys were the first opening band. And, uh, this was back in 2003 when I think they only had like one album or something. Like that's that. how I heard of the Black Keys from yeah, hearing about that concert. That's how I, I mean, I saw them. Yeah. Um, and now they've just become this huge, huge thing. Like they're one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, What's like their hit? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's like they're a band that like I don't I, know. I know what they sound like and I know who they are, but I can't like yeah think of any songs but you know i can say now like i saw them before they were cool well, that's like with with elliot smith everybody's like oh he's dead now we can never see him and it's like well i didn't even care that he was on stage <laughs> like I, nobody knew who he was yeah I, I, I it was the same kind of thing with the black keys like they were there and like when i when we showed up at spec like they were had already started playing and people were just kind of like milling around and it wasn't like you know yeah they were just kind of there. And I was like, oh, they're kind of like the White Stripes. And then, uh, you know. Yeah. That's as about as much thought as Jack White controversially pointed out in an interview a few weeks ago. I guess people were mad about that. Hmm. Yeah, I remember, like, when Elliot Smith was playing... Like, I feel like he was a few songs in before everybody realized that it wasn't, like, just some soundtrack. <laughs> it was like, oh, no, that guy, he's the show. That's funny. Because, I don't know, we had lawn seats and... It's just like, oh, there's this one guy on stage with a guitar, and it just, I don't know. I miss when I used to like Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> I like the first two albums where it was like, it was supposed to be like, oh, it's like emo, but it's acoustic. And then with every album, he kept adding more people to like the band, and then it became just like a regular, like, plugged in emo band. Right. And I was like, well, there's already bands like that. Like, that was your thing. What are you doing? You just threw it away. Now you're not special. But, I mean, like, it's true that you don't want to, like, fall victim to, like, your gimmick, but mm-hmm. I don't know. But I, I love the song Hands Down. The original acoustic version, not the electric single from a few years later. Mm. And it's funny. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, when Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes came out. Yeah. It was like, they're playing a bass. <laughs> and it was kind of like this i don't know how dare they yeah <laughs> it's so silly to think about in retrospect especially having like gone into like being in a band and stuff it's like i don't know <laughs> you never think about that kind you of thing. have to sound the same yeah. the entire time you're in that band it's just such an unreasonable like the beatles exactly yeah. love me do and let it be are like the same damn song 
they're not. But I mean, they <laughs> by that rule though, they they should sound the same over the course of that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if like the Beatles just never were able to evolve their sound or evolve their anything? Yeah, like if the they 70s, just made a they if made the seventies rolled around and they're still wearing those suits and like kind of just like playing these silly songs, just smoking cigarettes like tobacco cigarettes and taking pet pills like what is this heroin and marijuana and lsd get out of here that's Uh, that's my liverpool accent by the way (laughs) i mean they wouldn't have made it to the 70s probably just because i mean you know beatlemania would have died although i wonder if they hadn't evolved if like the mainstream would have evolved as much. It would have eventually, because that's what right. happens. <clears throat> yeah, that, I mean, that is a good point. I mean, like... And that's the kind of thing... It's it's hard to say, like, what... Like, things were moving so fast during the 60s. It's hard to kind of, like, point at things... Like, there was a new thing happening, like, every time a band would release a new album. It was like, oh, there's this new thing and this new thing. The first time this ever happened. The first time this ever happened. Um... But, yeah, I mean, they were doing things that nobody had ever done before. And not just in their music. And, like, you know, there was, like, um, you know, they're exposing the population to, like, Eastern mysticism. Yeah. And, like, different (laughs) kinds of drugs. And, I mean, they were, I mean, Magical Mystery Tour is, like, an experimental film that was mm-hmm. shown on the BBC in primetime on, on Boxing Day. Yeah, I can't imagine that. Like, th- that's what I kept thinking of when I was watching it. Just like, this was like a made-for-TV movie in 1967. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so weird. And I think just like where the culture was just like five years earlier. It's unbelievable how fast things changed. And like, there have been, I mean, like... In the early 60s, there were a ton of these, like, underground films. A lot of it was focused in, like, New York City. And, you know, the world at large, they were hearing about these movies, but they weren't seeing them. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, I feel like, well, in England, because it wasn't shown in America, like I feel like Magical Mystery Tour was, like, the first time they saw something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was panned across the board. (laughs) Everybody hated it. Well, can you imagine, I mean, it was shown in black and white. Can you imagine flying that scene in oh, black God. and white like yeah. it's, it's it like what the hell's wrong with my tv a gray mishmash um yeah apparently it was shown on bbc one and uh at the time that was wasn't in color and uh magical mystery tour is a very colorful film and so obviously like it did not look very good and i guess like a few days later something it was shown on bbc two which was in color but even then, like, the amount of color televisions yeah. just wasn't that high. So I think it was, like, they, there was, like, a penetration of, like, 200,000 color TVs or something like that. And then of that, like, only a certain percentage of those people might have even seen, seen And if they had already heard about how bad it was, yeah. then, like, yeah, I mean, so almost nobody saw it, like, in color, which definitely would change your opinion of, of the movie. But I mean, now look in this day and age, seeing it in color, like, what is your uh, reception of the movie? 
I fucking love it. You love it. I love it. I I got it for Christmas for my uncle Emil one year. He's the same person who gave me the Mexican Santa Claus when I was five. Good guy, that <laughs> uncle. <laughs> um, but yeah, and like I, the first time I watched it, I was like, "This is after I'd seen the anthology. I'd seen clips, and I knew all the songs and stuff." I watched it, and I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> and then so. I immediately had to watch it again. Mm. And then I was like, this is ridiculous. This is insane. So, of course, I had to watch it again. And I, I don't know how many times I've watched it over the years. but So, you, you're coming from... The, you, so, the, you have some nostalgia about this movie. Yeah. Now, your first time watching it, was that at Tim and Beth's? It was at... On my VHS copy? Yes. It was a Christmas party? Yes. At Tim and Beth's? Even though it's not like a Christmas thing, I always associate it with Christmas because, you know, it came out around Christmas and I got it for Christmas one Mm -hmm. year and uh, I just put it on. Yeah, that was the first time I had seen it, which that was, I guess, maybe like five years ago. But the the album Magical Mystery Tour, that was one of the first Beatles albums that I got that my parents gave me. And I think I told the story last episode um, about how I was given Abbey Road, but the song Maxwell Silverhammer scared me because my name is max and something about the song about a guy named max killing people with a hammer just kind of didn't set right settle right with me i was just talking about that story earlier today um and so my dad in all his wisdom was like oh you're scared of abbey road here here's magical mystery tour (laughs) and uh it definitely kept me up at night uh songs like blue jay way and i'm the walrus (laughs) and even fool on the hill um what's that fool gonna do to me yeah, it's, it's just like it, the album just always had this kind of creepy, off-putting vibe to it. It is a weird album. Yeah, and then um, years later, like seeing the movie, like it kind of the movie does kind of like bring all of like the songs of the album, kind of brings them together mm. in a way. Now the album itself. Uh, Magical Mystery Tour it's is a actually fake album. It's not a, a true album. It's not um, canon. <laughs> well, I mean, it is. Like, yeah, it, it is, is, but it, it is like now. it's what's known as a double EP. Um, it was the British version was a double the EP. British version was a double EP. So it's like side A was basically a collection of songs from the movie, um, and that was could be released as its own thing like as just its own ep which is like five or six songs or something like that um that was the whole double ep i thought was just all songs in the movie well because in america they added the singles like strawberry fields forever and penny lane and all you need is love and baby a rich man which was the b-side of all you need is love mm. okay yeah that makes sense so yeah the the magical mystery tours album that we know today that first half is kind of like that's what Magical Mystery Tour is. Yeah, because like the double EP, that's it. Like, kind of worked as like a soundtrack to the TV special, and then in America, you no, know, like some people might have heard that there had been like a film called Magical Mystery Tour, but mm-hmm. they hadn't seen it. So right. like, it wasn't it wasn't like a soundtrack sort yeah. of thing. It was just here's an album. And it's funny because like you watch the movie Magical Mystery Tour and. <sighs> It's the it's the one Beatles film that was like produced and directed by the Beatles. Um, Director of photography Richard, Richard Starkey, Starkey MBE. MBE. Yeah, 
<laughs> one of my favorite credits which in is, a movie. Which is great. Um, and regardless of what you say about their filmmaking prowess or ability, the songs that they made for it are great. Yeah. Um, I mean, Magical Mystery Tour... It's it's amazing to me that like, I mean yeah okay they're a musical band and so releasing music is what they do, but I mean all the songs like, Hard Day's Night Help and Magical Mystery Tour all the songs that are written for those like have transcended the movies just entirely. Um, I think there's not many people who when they hear, the song Hard Day's Night or Help or even Magical Mystery Tour. I don't think there are many people that like recall images from those movies when they hear the song like the songs just live on their own um and it's it's kind of remarkable and i mean you can tell that like they didn't really sit down and try to write songs for like magical mystery tour even um they didn't try to write them as part of like the story they're just kind of like oh here's a song like that they would have written anyway for an album you know (laughs) like uh your mother should know and it's like all right we'll work that in somehow and like you know whatever so i mean they were just kind of writing the songs normally as they would to an extent but i mean at least those three songs hard day's night help and magical mystery tour just like they would not exist if it weren't for those movie productions um yeah it's just it's 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 just crazy to me magical mystery tour the song um has always felt really creepy to me. Yeah. The ending, where it just kind of, like, tinkles away, sort of. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very ominous. Yeah. the whole, That whole album just, <laughs> just creeped me out. <laughs> um, so, I, me watching the movie, like, I don't have that sort of, like, nostalgia right. view of it. And um, what's interesting to me is that, like, in Hard Day's Night and Help... I'm most interested in those movies when they're not playing songs. Mm. I'm, you know, like I, I like following like the characters of the Beatles and like watching them do these like funny little bits and stuff. But with Magical Mystery Tour, it's kind of like the opposite. Where like I'm most interested in that movie because of like the songs and seeing them how they're sort of presented in the movie. Because I think like if you just take Magical Mystery Tour tour and just chop out all of like the the sort of music videos within them like they can kind of stand on their own and they're interesting and kind of cool but it's all that in between stuff that i don't really care for as much really yeah you don't like the whole thing with like aunt jesse and mr blood vessel i mean some of that stuff it's like it's interesting at first but it just kind of goes on for too long and i'm just like you know, okay, yeah, they're racing in cars around this thing, and it's just kind of going on and on and on. And I'm like, all right, you know, let's. What about yet again? We have Victor Spinetti showing up in a Beatles movie. It's right. three for three now. Mm-hmm. In his ridiculous scene as, as the a, uh, the military guy. The military guy, yeah. Which I mean, I you watch that scene, and I'm just like, it feels just straight out of Monty Python, mm. and um. Yeah, I mean, I think I talked about it last episode, but again, like, watching Magical Mystery Tour, like, I just wish that Monty Python had made it with them. Because, yeah, I, I think, like, 
and in some ways it's it's funny because I, I kind of have this like I do have a, a strong appreciation for what Magic Mystery Tour is doing. We made the Ravicon show after all. Yes, he did. <laughs> Which both projects were completely unscripted and just kind of like go out and just let's just shoot whatever we can. Magical Mystery Tour had a script. I actually I watched a PBS documentary about the making of it um, like a week or so ago when I thought we were going to record this. <laughs> um, and I forget if it was, I think it was Ringo who like still had his copy of the script. Mm hmm. And he, he held it up, and it was just like a drawing of a circle. A circle, yeah. Yeah. And he said, here's the script. Paul showed us this script. Because <laughs> Paul wrote, quote, the script. Well, as he and, called it, the script. Yes. <laughs> and it was basically like, at, at the beginning of the circle, you know, you leave on the Magical Mystery Tour, and mm -hmm. at the end of the circle, it it's, it's over. <laughs> and, like, they just tried to figure out what went in between. So they had the beginning and the end. Yeah, but I mean, they like to say that they had a script. I think is really kind of yeah deceiving because there really there was no script. Like literally, like the actors who were on the on the bus, they literally just said like show up at this time and get on the bus, and we're just gonna go on a magical mystery tour and see what happens. And, and then like one day, John might wake up and say, "I had a weird dream last night. I want to do a scene where I'm shoveling spaghetti onto this plate." And yeah. Um, and that's a really creepy scene. It is. That's that is one of the more highlights of the of those in between scenes. Um, Watching him play like that character. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what's cool about it. Who I think she calls him a name. I think it's Pirandello. I think she refers to him as Pirandello, who was the like uh, surrealist playwright. He did um, six characters in Search of an Author. Mm. And in that scene, I couldn't make out what it said on his jacket when he's playing the waiter. Um, there's, like, some words on the top and the bottom. And in between, um, there's a... Uh, what do you call that when your initials are on a thing? Embroidered? No, but the... Uh... Name tag? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, like, it's, you're, like, not insignia. You're... Um... I don't know. The, initial, the initials MC were there, and um, he was killed by Mark David Chapman. MC. Mark Chapman. Well, Paul is obviously dead. And <laughs> in the scene when Ringo purchases his ticket from John, uh, the sign on the desk says uh, M&D Company. Um, I think it's like the best way to go, or the only way to go. And MDC, yeah, MND company, yeah, Mark David Chapman. That's that's the way he went. Mm. <laughs> it all comes together. It's like the circle on the script. Yeah, there are some Paul is dead clues in this, um, and what's and like obviously, you know, yeah, Paul's not dead. It's all a, a joke thing. But it's fun to look for the clues, but they don't really mean anything. Well, I think like and, a movie like. Magical Mystery Tour, just like the stream of consciousness nature yeah. of it, and it has, like, the plot is, like, non-existent, really. It's just these string of strange, surreal images and skits and stuff. 
I think people just like try to find some kind of meaning in it and like, well, this obviously has to mean something like, well, that's what films are. Right. You watch them and they mean something and it's for the individual viewer to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, it's just funny that, I mean, that's actually where the song I am the walrus comes from. Yeah. It was, it's a joke. Yeah, because John had heard that like people were reading so far into their into the lyrics of their songs, and like there were like college courses being taught on like yeah. the meaning of their songs and stuff. And he was like, "Well, yeah, they're 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 crazy. Let's I'll give them something to dissect." And so he just like spat out "I Am the Walrus" and just wrote the most nonsensical lyrics he could think of. He's just like, "Here, you know, chew on that." And he turned out to be amazing there. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing song. That is like, I, you know, it not only, I mean, it is one of my favorite Beatles songs to an extent, but like just sort of stepping away from how I feel about all the Beatles songs. Like I'm the Walrus may be like their best song in some respects because I just don't know of any anything else that is like that. It is just so unique. The production, the effects, yeah, the collaging, the, the lyrics. It just, just comes together in this just perfect kind of way. And it, it just emanates this mood and this feeling that like is just so unusual and unique and not like anything else that like that the Beatles ever produced, not like anything else that any other musician has produced is just so it's dark and mysterious and weird and just yeah i i and just like the yeah just the sound quality of the the music and of like of the drums and just like everything about it is just great so that i i don't know that might be one of the because i think like it's it's timeless in a way that like if a band came out with that song today and like if if i'm the walrus never existed and some band like came out and like radio stations started playing it people even today would be like what the hell is this yeah. you know <laughs> like this is crazy you know like it it's just like music hasn't even really caught up with it yet i think in some respects it's weird i um was familiar with the oingo boingo cover version of it like I've never heard much, that. much more than the Beatles. Before I'd even heard the Beatles version, I, I had the Oingo Boingo album with that, uh, their last album, Boingo. And like, it was we when I finally heard the Beatles one, I was like, well, this is better than the Oingo Boingo. <laughs> but it was so like, I mean, Oingo Boingo was one of those bands that like prided themselves on their creepiness. And it was, you know, their version of it was like, oh, this is really weird mm-hmm. and out there and stuff. But then I hear the Beatles version and I'm like, Okay, so they're creepier than Oingo Boingo. That's that's interesting. Yeah, you'd expect. <laughs> and like, there's been like other. Yeah, I don't like anybody covering that song hasn't been able to capture just like that the perfect sort of balance of weirdness that that song did. It's funny that story reminded me of um, when I was going to school at, at Full Sail. We took a uh, public speaking class. And one of the assignments was like, find either like lyrics to a song or a poem or like a a monologue or something and, and 
choose it, and then next class we'll speak it in front of the whole class. So a friend of mine <laughs> um, went up and he was and he started to recite the words to imagine. Um, you know, he gets up there and he doesn't introduce the song or the, the song or anything. Yeah. He just says, imagine there's no heaven. You know, it's easy if you try and just list goes through all the lyrics. And then at the end he goes, that was imagined by a perfect circle. <laughs> <laughs> did everyone laugh or like, what I, did... everyone kind of just like awkwardly kind of clapped and like it threw me for a loop. And he was a, he was a good friend of mine too. And so like I he sat he was, he was sitting next to me. He came back and he sat down and, and I was like, you know that's a song by John Lennon, right? And he was like, oh, well, I wanted the I, I want everybody to think of the perfect circle version. <laughs> so like he didn't know that it was a, a song like that it wasn't a perfect circle wow. song. So he'd never seen Forrest Gump. Or if he did, that scene just went right over his head. <laughs> I, 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 I guess not. I, yeah, that that blew my mind. Huh. But at the same time, it kind of like, it was interesting because it almost proved that the song, you can take John Lennon out of the equation of that song, yeah. and it still was able to resonate with him, you know? Like, the, the song was that powerful, at least. So, that was interesting, but, yeah, really weird. <laughs> Um, you mentioned earlier about how, like, you love the, the, like, you use the term music video, which is appropriate, I think, like, the musical sequences yeah. in Magical Mystery Tour. Um, and I noticed how, like, in Hard Day's Night and Help, there were definitely, like, sequences that weren't necessarily, like, them performing the song. Mm -hmm. They were, they were closer to music videos, um, like, uh, Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. And Hard Day's Night, where they just, like, they're like, we're out, and they run around and everything. Yeah, and they're not playing instruments, um, they're not singing, but, like, it it's cut to the music, yeah. and it's, you know, it is very music video-y. And, like, in both those movies, whenever people are watching them do the songs, they're just doing a straight-up performance. Like, in Hard Day's Night, you know, they're putting on a, a television show, mm -hmm. and the cameras are capturing the live performance. And in Help, um, the opening credits you know, the members of the cult are watching them just perform a song. Right. And then in Magical Mystery Tour, you have this scene where everybody gets off the bus at, like, one of their stops along the way, and they all go into this tent, and they sit mm -hmm. down, they're going to watch a movie. Right. And it's Blue Jay Way. Yeah. And it's like... They're, it's like they're watching a music video. Yeah. And it just seems... Like, I mean... There were music videos before the Beatles, mm -hmm. and there were definitely before Magical Mystery Tour, but it just seems like, I don't know if there's ever any other instance where, like, we're watching people watch a music video. I don't know, it just, it seemed big to me. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not big, I don't know, it just seems like a an well, odd moment within the film. I mean, you say that there were music videos before the Beatles, and there were... There were Soundies and Scopatones. Right. And, yeah. Um... By today's standard of what a music video is, they're kind of archaic, I suppose. Well, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the ones that get shown on, like, VH1 and MTV nowadays are, they have no imagination, and, I mean, like, a lot of them are still, like, the, like the music videos, that like, the great music videos that we grew up with, but 
a lot of them are just people performing mm-hmm. and those videos just piss me off and it's like we're just gonna point cameras at the band and it's like that's not a fucking music video show some uh, well by know. that standard like you say that music videos existed before the beatles and like that's what they were at that right. time just people playing yeah that's what they were back then they shouldn't be like that now we've moved <laughs> beyond that right yeah but yeah. even then i mean in the 30s you had like the the Betty Boop cartoons that were based around Cab Calloway songs. Mm. And you had like the rotoscope Cab Calloway dancing around and stuff. And like, and, um, something like Fantasia in 1941, like, you know, I mean, there were, they weren't pop songs, but they were like these, you know, music videos to these classical mm. songs, you know, but they were within like a larger movie. Whereas like there were like, you know, before the movies along with like the newsreels and like the cartoons and stuff, they would show these, not music videos because they didn't have video back then. Right. But you know, they like in the forties they called them soundies, and then later you had the scopatones, and I forget what they were called in the twenties. Um, there were like a few like musical shorts made like before the jazz singer, where they were just you know people singing their songs and stuff. Mm. But nothing like Blue Jay Way. Yeah, that was actually <laughs> one that kind of. St- stood out to me um within magical mystery tour there's there's a few of of these music videos quote unquote there's one for fool on the hill which has some of the best cinematography in the Mm. in the whole thing i think there's one shot in particular where paul is kind of like skipping along at, at the bottom of the frame and he's standing in front of this like mountain and the the background is just completely filled with trees yeah and it's a very very great image and um yeah probably one of the better looking shots in the movie um so there's there's that one then there's um i'm the walrus which is um remarkable if only for the fact that like it's the only time that the beatles ever performed it in any fashion because it it was such a studio driven song Mm. um and it was recorded in all these kind of just like chopped up things, uh, little bits. Um, so when they actually were making the movie, like that's the only time that they ever played that song like together as the four of them. Um, so that's interesting. But Blue Jay Way, like the imagery that's going on in it is in the way that it's edited and the way that it's shot feels the most like a modern music video to me in a way there's a great shot of like the the cello like smoking at the bottom of the stairs and like the way that the camera kind of zooms in and out and cuts around like yeah. it's it's very dynamic and and a lot of the um like kaleidoscope effects within that scene was um i guess ringo at the time was really into cameras hmm. and like trying different lenses lenses and stuff and i guess a lot of that was him saying like I mean, he was the credited cinematographer for whatever that's worth. God knows how much he actually did. But, yeah. like, I guess he was one of the ones pushing, like, the different, uh, like, lens effects and things mm. like that. Yeah, that is cool. And at the end of the song, it's like, George is going to get run over by the bus. Yeah. Because, like, there's always, like, you see headlights behind when he's sitting... He's basically performing the song like in the middle of the road, which like mm-hmm. over the course of the video, you kind of figure it out because there's cars going by and stuff. And then at the end of it, it like there's freeze the head- frames. The headlights like, are coming up behind him, yeah, and then it freezes. 
And then, so you think like, oh no, that's sad, but then everybody gets up and they clap. And when you think about what the Magical Mystery Tour is, like, I mean, what is it? We don't really know, like, where they're going or anything. Well, it's a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> the Magical Mystery Tour, I think, is just, they're all, it's, I almost, like, compared it to other movies, but I would, and it would be one of those things where I'm spoiling the ending of those movies, so I won't mention any of them, but I think they're all dying or dead, and they're on their way to wherever you go when you die. That's funny because I brought up the fact that it reminded that that uh, that army sergeant scene reminded me of Monty Python. Yeah. Then there's the scene uh, with John shoveling the spaghetti onto the table, which also brings to mind a certain sketch brought by Monty Python in the Meaning of Life, um, which hap- which takes place in the oh restaurant. yeah. And there's like the the waiter John Cleese who's just like bringing constantly bringing over food to the giant fat guy and then he explodes and puking everywhere um and then the way that magical mystery tour ends with uh that the scene in the uh with the with the doodah band um the bonzo dog doodah band bonzo dog doodah band seeing death cab for cutie yes and um your mother should know in this kind of like lavish kind of schmaltzy yeah. show tune kind of thing um, also brings to mind is the end of Meaning of Life where it's Christmas in heaven and it's like you know you like you know they, they die at the end of Meaning of Life and then you go to heaven and it's like checking into this like Las Vegas hotel or something and you go and you sit down and there's like the schmaltzy guy on stage like welcome everybody <laughs> you know and then there's like the, this cheesy musical number very much like that so I, I mean and Paul's flower was black. True. The other ones were red. Therefore, Paul, Paul at is least dead. is dead. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, yeah. yeah, Magical Mystery Tour really does remind me of Meaning of Life a lot, actually. Um, and, like, the four or five wizards. Mm-hmm. That they're, like, no one, like, nobody on the bus ever talks about them. But the four or five wizards are always like, where are they? Are they? Well, Ringo especially is it's like, where's the bus? Yeah. <laughs> Which brings to mind, um, oh, fishy, 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 totally. oh. But anyway. But which way did the fishy <laughs> go? Um, I want to watch that again. Uh, Meaning of Life is so good. It is, it is, they're, it's, I mean, it's hard to say which is their best movie, but it's definitely. Up I think there. if I hadn't watched Holy Grail too many times, I might think that's the best. But like, I, I haven't, it's, it's I haven't seen Holy Grail in such a long time because it kind of was the same thing. Where like yeah. growing up, I watched it so many times, and yeah. like my dad was a big fan, and it used to be this thing that like I felt like it just seemed so weird. And then as I realized, like everybody knew that movie. Mm. It kind of was that weird thing where it's like, oh, it's not cool anymore because like everybody <laughs> likes it. But I just heard it quoted so many times and just like, I don't know, it it did kind of die for me. But it's been like maybe ten years since I've seen. Holy I just Grail. realized I haven't watched Holy Grail since spring of two thousand two. Yeah, it it, it could be. <laughs> That's it, a long time. Ago. It could be that long for me because I just I remember meeting somebody at Plattsburgh who had who had never not only not seen it she'd never heard of it mm. and i was like well i have to show it to you and I, and then i was like oh i think why don't i think this is funny 
this is a funny movie. I love this movie. Why aren't I it? laughing? Because <laughs> you've seen it too many And then, times. like, I haven't watched it since then. Yeah, so I feel like I'm kind of ready to, like, yeah. watch it again. Interestingly enough, bringing up My Spy Thine and the Holy Grail, one thing I learned today is that when they were making My Spy Thine and the Holy Grail, or when they were going to release it into theaters, this was in 1975, hmm. um, Michael Palin was working with George Harrison, who was a friend of theirs, and they were going to actually release Magical Mystery Tour alongside oh, right. the Holy Grail as like sort of like the, the intro of the opening act. Yeah. So you'd go into the theater and you'd watch Magical Mystery Tour before watching uh, Holy Grail as like a double feature. It would have been the first time most Americans had seen it. It would have been the first time most people had seen it in color. Yeah. So I mean, And it makes sense because, I mean, uh, Magical Mystery Tour is like 52 minutes or something like that. It's pretty short um you know so i mean it was too short to release into theaters regularly unless it was like a special screening which i think they did sometime in the 80s or something um but yeah it all like that monty python connection really shines through i mean it's it's funny i mean i, I can imagine that the magical mystery tour movie could have been a an influence on the Monty Python people, at least some of them. Like I, it's crazy that at least that came out of it to some extent, perhaps in some way. If we continue doing Beatles movies over the next couple of weeks, we should watch the magic Christian Graham Chapman and John Cleese show up. It's from 1969. Mm. And I guess it's, so it's when they were first forming and I guess they had a hand in some of the like writing as well, or at least for their scenes. And Ringo's in it as like the star of the movie. Yeah, I actually found the soundtrack to that movie at Last Vestige in Albany, but I didn't buy it because I was buying a whole bunch of other albums. But the, in the basement, they've got a huge soundtrack selection. And I found the Magic Christian. I'm like, oh, this is cool. But yeah, I didn't get it. Um. Oh, the re- the way we got onto Monty Python when I did my Ringo impression. Um, because I was talking about the four or five wizards. Right. Yep. Um. So like, yeah, nobody on the bus mentions them, but they know about the bus and they're tracking the progress of the bus. So they're waiting for the bus to show up. Mm-hmm. And they're like far off beyond the clouds. Like we're first introduced to them after the flying sequence. Mm-hmm which is incredible where no human eyes have ever set foot before <laughs> which is a great line yeah. a lot of john's narration is is awesome yeah um but like i i mean they're i just think they're dead and i just think that uh when you die you go to see the wizards <laughs> i mean that makes sense right they the, the beatles <laughs> kind of transform back into the wizards at the end of the movie because they come, march, they come down the stairs singing, you know, yeah. Your Mother Should Know. And then when that's over... They go into, like, a reprise of Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, and, and suddenly they're the wizards. Yeah. And they're, like, running towards the camera or whatever. So. Yeah. Because they've, they've gone beyond their mortal bodies. They've transcended. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. The Magical Mystery Tour is dying to take you away. <laughs> yes it is it's it's the grim reaper it's it's coming to take you away take you today watch out 
But no, don't watch out. It's a positive experience. It's just a, it's just another journey. This uh, <laughs> sorry. And the couriers the, are dressed in white. They could be angels, I guess. Yes. Bringing you along. There was also the um, the instrumental versions of Beatles hits. Oh again, right, yeah, yeah. Which I because I saw Magical Mystery Tour before I got the album uh, with the Beatles. When I hear all my all my loving in my head like when i think about the song it's extremely slow and then like you hear the actual like song from with the beatles it's like this i mean it's not like fast but it's like Mm -hmm. a decent rock song yeah um but i always think of like the strings and everything when like they're on the beach that actually is another one of the really great things about magical mystery tour is those couple little instrumental bits and she loves you at the beginning of the the yeah like the sort of like the wrestling the Ferris or the the carnival version of it or yeah. Ferris wheel version or something. Um, Harkening yeah. back to like Mr. Kite or something. Mm. Which is really cool. And yeah, that all my loving uh, instrumental piece is really awesome. Um, it's a shame that those aren't kind of, they could, they could release a whole album of just pulling out those instrumental versions from all of their movies mm. because there's a good amount if you tally up from Hard Day's Night, you got this boy. Um, maybe one other that I can't think of. Um, help, there's a couple. Um, I think Hard Day's Night had instrumental versions of a Hard Day's Night in it. Help had an instrumental version of a Hard Day's Night. Didn't Hard Day's Night also? I don't think so. Oh, wait, no. Um, I'm I'm happy just to dance with you. That's right. They're, they're yep. dancing to on That's stage. That's true, yeah. That's it. Um, well, there were soundtrack albums to Hard Day's Night and Help, in and, addition to the regular albums. Yeah, which, may, did those have those on them? I'm not sure. I assume so, because they had all the score, and I feel okay, like that's yeah. all there was of the score, right, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are those are really great. I, I should track those down sometime, because I... They'd be, they'd be nice to listen to, just on their own. I almost bought them uh, on cassette from Saturday Matinee. That store went out of business a long time ago. So. <laughs> All right, so we just took a little bit of a break, but um, let's move on to Yellow Submarine. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow Submarine. I was going to try to introduce it a little bit, like. Oh, okay. Well, we can let's start move over. on because I was going to say the, the last <laughs> of the Beatles films, but that's not true because there was Let It Be afterward. Um, but. What was supposed to be the last of their what United was Artists contract. supposed to be the last of their, yeah. But didn't end up counting, which is why they had to make Let It Be. Um, Yellow Submarine, the most unique and different of the Beatles films. Theatrical Beatles films. You, I mean, I would say that Magical Mystery Tour has more in common with Help and Hard Day's Night than okay. Yellow Submarine does. I mean, they are all live action and they all do feature the Beatles. Yeah, and they all kind of have that very low-budget, kind of off-the-cuff, just kind of thing going on. Yellow Submarine, right from the very beginning, you can tell, like, this thing is, like, it feels like the most polished, um, most high-budget production of any of the Beatles movies. Really? Yeah, it feels to me it feels like that. All that animation, like, I feel like it had to have been the most expensive. 
Okay, yeah. I, guess. I mean, Magical Mystery Tour was probably made for like nothing. Um, Hard Day's Night was like just a couple thousand dollars. Help had more of a budget than Hard Day's Night, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like Yellow Submarine was probably the most expensive. Um, maybe because I, I watched Magical Mystery Tour and Yellow Submarine back to back as sort of like a wild double feature. Um, I mean, I watched Magical Mystery Tour this afternoon, and, and then yeah, yeah watched and, Yellow Submarine with you just now. And the image quality of Magical Mystery Tour, I watched it online, wasn't the best. And Did then, you watch it on YouTube? Yeah. Which is It's weird that not all right, very... the Beatles are famous for like, you know, like you can't it's difficult to like get the copyright approval and stuff and right. use their songs. And yet Magical Mystery Tour is on YouTube. Yeah, just uploaded by some random person. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. How I Won the War, the the other Dick Lester film that John Lennon is in, mm-hmm. also on YouTube, oddly enough. Really? I, I really want to watch that movie. Never seen it. Me too. And now that I know it's there, I'm like, cool, I can watch it now. And I just, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know why. But anyway. Um, but yeah, going off of like the somewhat low res kind of just 16 bad millimeter, transferred yeah. version. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, <laughs> I, I had this sort of like Blu-ray version of Yellow Submarine and it looks amazing. And like the colors are so bright and vivid and the animation is so nice looking and just so imaginative and crazy it made it a little hard to to take in yeah that i mean so by the end of the movie i kind of had a headache because yellow submarine is one wild movie (laughs) um what was that (laughs) what just happened Oh, okay. <laughs> no, they're aliens shooting at us. I yeah, I thought someone just came in and shot you. Right? Yeah, there's like strobing effects. Yeah, there's that just... the only the northern song section. Holy crap! Like, cause you have this like spinning cube that's like flashing red and green, so fast that it like kind of melds into one color, and the background is all messed and messed up and crazy. And then you go into like the sea of holes and like it's there's like four thousand holes fucking with your perspective about enough to fill the Abbott Hall. Um, yeah, I mean it really like and just the bright colors and crazy designs really can fuck with your head. I feel like I I only watched the movie this one time and I feel like I missed so much just in trying to like look at everything Mm -hmm. because there's just so much happening all the time. It's kind of like my experience with Akira because of the subtitles having to like look up and down. Right. Yeah. But like with this, it's just, you know, it's in English. I don't need subtitles, but I'm still like looking all over the screen. But at the the same time, like some of the stuff that they're saying because of the accents and it really sometimes like was hard to understand what they were saying. Because it kind of just mumbled things like this. Yeah, it was And you're like, what did he say? It was odd not having the actual Beatles voices. Yeah, and that brings me to, like, the thing that, like, in my sort of hypothetical dream world, like, I was kind of disappointed with Magical Mystery Tour because I'm like, oh, wouldn't it have been great if, like, the Monty Python guys had, like, made this movie with them? Yellow Submarine really fails for me in one major regard, and that is the fact that the actors playing the Beatles are not the actual Beatles. Yeah. Um, and to really kind of like nail that 
home is the little brief appearance of them at the end. Because as I'm watching the movie and I'm like, you know, okay, these guys are trying to do these kinds of like somewhat some of them are sound pretty decent yeah. in close relation. Like Ringo sounded pretty close to Ringo. George sometimes sounded pretty close to George. John didn't sound anything like John. Um, but the things that they're saying in the dialogue, like in kind of like the little sort of jokey remarks about sort of references to their songs or mm. like these little things. I'm like, I don't know if, if the Beatles would really be into saying that kind of stuff as much. But then you see them live at the end because they have this little brief appearance at the end. And they're like, well, wasn't that a great movie? You know, Which and is the best part of the movie. <laughs> it was so much fun to watch. I'm like, oh, man, like these guys, like they have just like that. I want there to be like four hours of outtakes of just that one scene that we can watch forever. <laughs> um, but they're talking and you're instantly like, I wish the whole movie had been with them talking like this. And I feel like it's like it's weird, okay. Cuz like you kind of brought up the fact that this was meant to be the last of their three picture deal that they had with United, United Artists. Artists. Um first two being Hard Days Night and Help. They made Magic Mystery Tour on the side kind of like their own thing that yeah. they wanted to do. It was do. a TV special made for BBC. Yeah. yeah, not really serious. So they were still they still owed United Artists one movie. After the reception of Magical Mystery Tour, which was critically panned and just awful, Paul McCartney actually like publicly apologized for the movie and said like, "Hey, sorry that people don't like it. Like, yeah, we might have we might have messed up, but he's come around since. Then. Oh well, yeah, maybe yeah, a little too yeah. far since then. Now he thinks he's very proud of himself for it now. <laughs> um, so they were kind of like not really ready to jump right into a whole nother movie um but they still had this deal that they had to fulfill and they're like why don't we do an animated movie like yeah that way you know we can just kind of be hands off let we don't have to go out and act in this thing and we can just like hand it off to someone else they were still contractually obligated to appear on screen at least which is why that little end bit (laughs) exists because they're like you have to be in this movie um, so like, all right. So they had like, you know, like probably an hour of shooting time to do that little end thing. Um, but ultimately, the 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 deal it didn't count towards their three picture deal yeah. because ultimately United Artists was like, nice try, guys, but this <laughs> is not what we were talking about. We want a movie with you guys as the starring roles. Like, you have to make a movie with you in it. And they're like, fine. You know, so that's where Let It Be came about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they didn't really want to make the movie. Mm. And uh, so... Th- how much they were really involved with Yellow Submarine is kind of like, I guess it's somewhat debatable, but my impression is like they didn't really have anything to do with the production of it, with the story, with the dialogue, with anything really. That's how it seems to me. Yeah. Even the songs had already been rejected from Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. They were already recorded. <laughs> these like, just outtakes that they had lying around and they're like, well, we need the original songs for it. They're like, take the table scraps you know <laughs> like they, they couldn't even be, couldn't even be bothered to record an original 
songs for for the movie. Um, oh, they all loved the movie. They enjoyed the when it, the, when the movie came out. You know, they they watched it and they were like, "This is amazing!" And they loved like the way that it was animated and everything in that style, which I can totally understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, oh man, how great would the movie have been if it had been all their voices? I just think it would have it would have elevated it to a whole other yeah place. And it's interesting because like the Beatles had a, a Saturday morning cartoon on TV for a couple years at least I think it ran um which in which the voices of them were not done by them they were had other actors. And I'm not sure if it was the same actors from the TV show that carried over into Yellow Submarine. I don't think all of them, but at least some of them were. Mm. Um so, you know, like, they were at least used to the idea of, like, there are other people playing us, you know, in this other realm. Which, in that in and of itself is such a strange notion that, like, a band could be so big and so huge that you could have other people playing characters of them and have it be, like, successful. Like, I can't think of any other scenario in which something like that exists um Lance Percival who was the voice of Fred in the film I guess he did the voices of Paul and Ringo on the TV show oh okay it's weird that he didn't do their voices in the movie that is weird yeah oh and um Peter Batten who provided the voice of George for the first half of the film was discovered to be a deserter from the British army so they had to fire him and replace him with uh Paul Angelis, or Angelis, who had been doing the voice of Ringo. That is so weird. So, I mean, like, all... That is one of the things, like, all the voices do just kind of blend together yeah. to some extent. Like, like if sometimes, like, if the characters are kind of far in the background or something and you just hear the voices talking, like, you m- couldn't even really pick out who was supposed to be who in some and then, instances. It's frustrating because then, you know, you hear their singing voices. Yeah, and because the, they're like, what do you think, George? Maybe we should sing a song. And then, you know, it sounds nothing like John. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, all you need is love. And you're like, yeah, okay, we know the jig is up. Like, <laughs> these aren't the Beatles. This <laughs> reminded me of um, Justin Pazel's, uh impression of John Lennon, which is, I'm John Lennon. <laughs> And for some reason, I think that's hilarious, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, outside of Ringo, who went on to do voice work for animated things, he at least did the uh, the point. Yeah, well, somebody had done it for theaters, and then like later, Ringo like dubbed over it, because I guess Harry Nilsson was like, well, you're my friend, I want your voice in it. I don't remember who the actor was that... Okay they dubbed over but yeah the point is a uh, a movie that's kind of similar to yellow submarine and that it's an animated feature film um written by a musician uh harry nielsen and he had wrote and recorded all these songs specifically for it um but it that's a really cool that's a that's a great movie um if you like yellow submarine then i would definitely suggest checking out the point um, and the album is great too. Some some really great songs on but that. It was Dustin Hoffman. Oh, that's Ringo's, right. Yeah, yeah. It was Dustin Hoffman, and then they 
um, when they first showed it on TV. That's right. It wasn't theatrical, it was television. And then went for home video, they, they dubbed Ringo. it over with Ringo. I don't know how Mr. Hoffman feels about that, but yeah. So home video, so that was probably sometime in the 80s when that happened. And was Ringo on, what show was he on? Like uh, Shining Time Station. Shining Time Station. Um, so maybe that had already happened by the time that so maybe that was kind of like oh he's like in the children's program kind of thing we just slap his voice on there oh he always kind of was because i mean like the song yellow submarine right is like a great children's song yeah and he did an album in the late 70s i think that was uh was it scouse the mouse or something like that it was like a children's album i don't know it was like a he played a mouse or something (laughs) sounds about right par for the course he, he wasn't doing too great album wise in the late 70s early 80s so um but yeah so i mean other than that like i don't know if any of the four of them ever did actually like record voices for like an animated program of any kind i um recently acquired a dvd of um animated films on the cover it's like paul mccartney presents and I guess he introduces oh, some of them. Oh, right, yeah. But I'm not I've sure. I've seen that in bargain bins before. Yeah, I Jenny was getting rid of a bunch of her movies, and she had that. And I was like, well, I'll see what the hell this is. I've been curious about that. What is I it? haven't watched it yet. Oh, okay. Um, I'm working my way through the stack that I got from her. Yeah, so it's like a collection of like short animated films presented by Paul McCartney. That's what it seems like. And I don't know if he had anything to do with like the production of them mm. or if he's like lending his voice at all or what but but anyway i mean i know that like they actually had that almost wound up in a disney movie do you know this no but i like the way that you ask that like you're bragging (laughs) like do you know this do you you know this i know this i I don't know this (laughs) well i didn't well i didn't mean to sound braggy but i meant to ask like you know are you do you are you familiar with what i'm talking about no um the jungle book that makes sense, because that was 67, right? Yeah. And there are characters in the Jungle Book that are based on the Beatles, which are the, the vultures. You know, what do you want to do today? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to do today? The, I don't know if I've seen that, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, they kind of show up towards the end. Um, those, they, those... Do they have, those like, buzzard beetle haircuts? Yeah, sort of? they have, like, okay, the, I, the mop top kind of haircuts. This is seeming familiar. Have they popped up in random other Disney things? Not that I know of. Hmm. Um, yeah, they were originally supposed to be voiced by the Beatles, but somewhere along the line they couldn't do it, or like something happened and they that didn't work out. Um, which also is kind of a shame because that would just be kind of cool. Like, I mean, it's insane. Like you were you were showing me a uh, you you were talking about this uh, Batman comic book that came out yeah. in, like early nineteen seventy. It was a, you know, it's a part of the official Batman line of comics, like, or it might be a detective comics. Um, I think it was Batman 222. Okay. Um, in which the Beatles guest starred in that. Like, it's just crazy how much the Beatles just permeated pop culture just everywhere, you know? <laughs> like, they, they worked their way into, into the Batman universe and, like... You know, they were going to be in Disney and just, it's crazy, but. Did they have a cereal? Was there a, a Beatles breakfast, breakfast cereal? cereal? Oh, yeah. I'm sure there had to have been, right? 
I want to see that now. I've never really thought about it before. What would it, it seems like? What would it be called? Eat the Beatles. Eat the Beatles. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Eat the Beatles. Um, yeah, with with fun shapes in the in the shape of each of their profiles or something, and they just don't look anything like anything. They're just these blobs. Yeah. They're like this one's Ringo, and it's just like if you say so, a blob, kind of like Animal Crackers. Um, but anyway. What I really mean to say, yeah, <laughs> in a sort of long-winded way, Sorry. is that I feel like voice acting is something that like they would have had a lot of fun with, and especially the script for Yellow Submarine. I feel like they would have just—it was like right up their alley, you know what I mean? And it's just a shame that that didn't work out, because I can imagine like just—I can—I can hear it in my head, and it's just. Uh, like some of those lines that they had, and, and the script is actually like pretty good um, for Yellow Submarine. A lot of the little uh, witty dialogue and the repartee, I guess. You don't look bluish. Yeah, <laughs> that wasn't a Beatle line, but still. <laughs> Are you bluish? You don't look bluish. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like, really great one-liners and things. Like, oh. It's a it's a cyclops. That's not a cyclops. He has two eyes. Oh, we must be a bicyclops. You know those kinds of lines that the Beatles had kind of been famous for. Um, and it's like they're not necessarily funny. It's just they're so stupid that you laugh. Yeah, but there's still there's still wit there. Mm -hmm. Like, so yeah. What what were your overall impressions of the movie? I mean, aside from the, like, at once you can kind of get over the fact that like, all right, these aren't the Beatles yeah. actually talking, and that's a shame. I mean. But what do you think of the movie as it is? I was expecting more, I think. In what I, way? More... More things to happen? Like, more of a, a story or a plot? Which, you know, <laughs> I was gonna, as somebody who loves Magical Mystery Tour... <laughs> I was going to say, have you been paying attention to any of the Beatles movies that we've watched? What makes you think that this movie, of all of them, are gonna, is suddenly going to be like, you know... But there's always something happening and like yes like the the screen is always the, the frame is always filled mm -hmm. and well i mean not necessarily filled because there is like a scene where somebody like sucks in all of the background and everything but you know something is always happening visually on the screen but it's not there's not a lot of like movement or there's not a lot of like uh it's not a very kinetic film i'm trying to like, like I'm not sure if I'm explaining it right. Because, like, Magical Mystery Tour, it, you know, it meanders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. But there's always something going on. And you're always like, what the fuck? Or, like, why are they doing that? And yeah, like, there, there's no what the fuck in Yellow Submarine. And yellow, yeah, there's plenty of what the fuck <laughs> in Yellow Submarine. But I'm not sure how to describe it. Like, I liked the movie. I don't want to seem like I'm, like, just shitting on it or anything. And, mm. Um... Oddly enough, one of my favorite parts, I think, was a part that made me maybe the most uncomfortable, which was, it opens oddly. With, well, not opens. There's, like, the little prologue in Pepperland and everything. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, like, we, we like, the, the Yellow Submarine escapes Pepperland and is searching for someone to help save the day from the Blue Meanies. And we show up in Liverpool, basically. Yeah. And Yelsa and Eleanor Rigby starts to play, 
And it's got that uh, interesting... I forget what that type of animation is called. It's like... I, I mostly know it from, like, the credits for Count Ducula, which is one of my favorite cartoons when I was a kid. Like, that... Where they're using photographs, but they're, like, animating the photographs mm-hmm. combined with drawings. Yeah, it's kind of like... A, like it's like Some a elements are rotoscoped, thing. some elements are yeah. drawn, some are, like, photos, and they're kind of... Some are just, like, video that's kind of cut in and... And it was really interesting, and but at the same time, it was such a like a dark, sad. It's like, oh, look at this dreary real world that the Beatles live in. Yeah. Sort of. I thought that whole opening was amazing. I, I, that is, I think, one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah. Because the animation in that section is top notch. It's like, like when we come in and we're like, you know, the, the like the sun is rising over Liverpool mm. and like there's all the different layers. Like there's like five different layers of background, like foreground, middle ground, yeah. background. And then the camera angle like moves down into the streets and like everything shifts and the perspective changes of all these layers. And I'm just like, wow, this is really like beautiful and like really uniquely animated thing. Kind of again, kind of brings to mind the animations of Monty Python in a way um, of Terry Gilliam. Like the kind of cutout photograph yeah. style of of things, um, but yeah, it is interesting. I mean, like, yeah, we go, we we start in Pepperland, and it's this fantastical place, and the blue meanies are attacking, and it's kind of like, um, you know, oh, this is this is horrible. Like the the forces of evil are uh, taking over this wonderful land of love and color and draining all the color out of it and then we come to the real world and it's like even worse yeah, than like the what blue the blue meanies are done yeah. yeah it's like yeah exactly like the blue meanies have already like taken over that place I think maybe like you mentioning that about the blue meanies like I feel like that's maybe one of my problems with the movie is that there should be more now there should be more but like I think I would have been more into it if there had been more um, of the Blue Meanies throughout, like, as a threat, as, like, an ongoing threat. And they are there throughout, but not, like, not so much. Like, you can go, like, a few minutes. You can go, like, there's a lot of songs. Oh, yeah. Like, in a row sometimes. (laughs) I mean, from when, like, they, the, um, what's his name? The the guy, Fred, who comes and once he recruits the Beatles to help his cause and they leave the real world and head towards Pepperland. Most of the movie is, is that section. It feels like where it's at least half of it. Um, just getting back to Pepperland. Um, you know, there's the sea of monsters, the sea of time, the sea of holes, just all these things one after another. And yeah, it kind of does feel like we're not getting anywhere. I think, yeah, I mean, we could have definitely gotten to Pepperland a lot faster. Or even if they don't get to Pepperland faster, like, we can cut away from them to the Blue Meanies, like, like the wizards in <laughs> Magic Mystery Door, just, like, waiting for them to show yeah, like, up. where are they now? They're in the Sea of Time. Oh, the Sea of Time, they surely won't get past there. And then, yeah. And, like, <laughs> once they get closer, there there's, like, a little bit like that, but it's not throughout... Yeah, because then by the time we get back to Pepperland, we've almost, like, forgotten about the Blue Meanies yeah. in a way. And then we kind of have to, like, we're like, oh, yeah, we're back in this world. And it is interesting. That whole end section is kind of, like, paced strangely because 
there's like the their super weapon, which is the glove, which is really cool, and I like the I like I like the glove enemy, um, and they defeat the glove by singing "All You Need Is Love," and when that's happening, I'm like, okay, this is the end of the movie, because it feels like the end of the movie. Like they've defeated the blue mini army and the blue mini super weapon with "All You Need Is Love." It feels like you know that's the message of the movie. That's how it ends. But that's not how it ends. It kind of just keeps going after that. And we have to, uh, we sit through uh, Hey Bulldog, because it's like, oh, we've got to deal with this, you know, Cerberus dog. Creature. Which had been cut for the original US release, and they oh, only that restored it? it in the 90s. Oh, okay. It makes sense, because I feel like... I read reviews where it's like, it's great that that's back in, but it's oddly paced at that moment <laughs> totally it feels strange because it's like we just get off of that high of like all you need is love and like they restore all the pepperland you know de- citizens and they're all marching behind them and they're all singing and having a good time and it seems like the blue meanies are defeated and then it's like not done yet hey bulldog <laughs> you know? it's a weird way to go out on I think I, I was familiar with the Toad the Wet Sprocket cover before I heard the Beatles version. And that's not even what we go out on, because we have uh, It's All Too Much at the end. Which is... Oh, yeah. And then... And then All Together, all together now. now. So it's like, yeah, it is it is all too much, for sure. <laughs> I was, Yeah, as that song came out, I was thinking, like, yes, that is... Yes, it is all too much. <sighs> um. So I feel like you know the hey like the hey bulldog like even if it, like it had just been before all you need is love it just would have made more sense. The idea of the glove super weapon reminds me of Cutthroat Island. In what way? Um, wasn't that the one where they introduced this like weapon which was like a gun with like different barrels like a it looked like a glove or something? Oh yeah, yeah. And then they never did anything with it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it shows up and it's like this crazy sword gun thing Yeah, with like three barrels or some crazy right. shit, and you're just like, wouldn't it be funny if we just never saw that again? And then, of course, like <laughs> we never see it again. It's like, what the hell? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually found myself really enjoying Yellow Submarine. I think uh, it's, it's interesting because unlike... The other Beatles films, this one feels like it's almost more of like a retrospective of their musical history because we are incorporating... I mean, we're, the movie is, is based on a song that had came out like years before at this point. Two years before. Two, well, yeah, it's still years. It's weird to think like how much happens in two years. I know. And little, like... Especially, like I mean, like I said before, in the 60s, things were just moving so fast, and the Beatles' careers moved so fast. And I mean, like the animated versions of the Beatles in this film are like the way they looked when they did Sgt. Pepper, and then you see them live action at the end, and they look like they did on the White Album. Right, because... And it's like only a year on. later yeah. that it's like John's like rail thin on heroin or whatever, and he's got his like long hair. Yeah, um... So I mean, yeah, we're we're they're pulling back, you know, Yellow Submarine, and actually like, it's probably the first time that they took the uh, well, maybe maybe they did this in the in the Saturday morning cartoon, but actually like took the um, like the lyrical content of the songs and kind of like created this their own sort of Beatles world, you know, where it's like 
we have Yellow Submarine and Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is a real band. They are real characters. Sergeant Pepper is a real person, and like, you know, he, oh here's here's the Nowhere Man, you know, and here's all those characters you love so much from the Beatles songs. Yeah, everybody loves Nowhere Man. <laughs> I've always wanted to meet Nowhere Man. <laughs> Um, it bugged me how when they do Sgt. Pepper, like the song Sgt. Pepper is Only Hearts Club Band, and then they do the, the Billy Shears thing at the end, mm-hmm. and it shows just not Ringo. Yeah. And then they start to do with a little help from my friends, and it just fades out and goes over to the... Yeah, that was the, weird. But I mean, that's, I mean, you know, was, instead of just doing one more song, they just kept it going a little bit, so... Yeah, it's funny. I feel like <laughs> I've been kind of saying like, "Oh, I wish they that the, this movie had happened like this." But I'm going to say it again. I wish that Yellow Submarine had been made like after the Beatles had kind of done all of their stuff, like like in the '70s. Yeah, or like after uh, Abbey Road, maybe. Yeah, because they wouldn't have had to have been in the same room to record their voices. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been a problem. Because I don't and think... <laughs> wasn't the last time all four of them were in the same room in, like, 1970 or 71? Um, because they, all, they all had to sign something. Yeah. But it's kind of, like, some accounts say that. But then there's some accounts also that say that, like, during the recording of Ringo Starr's album, Ringo, they may have all been in the same room at the same time. They might have all been in the same building, but I don't think they were ever in the same... Well, that's the thing. It's like some people say that they were. Some people say that, like, it never happened. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it could have happened, but we don't know. They all hung out all the time. The whole decade of the 70s. <laughs> yeah. They had all this stuff going on in public, but in private. They they were still just chaps. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, it would have been cool if there was a little bit more distance between, like, the uh, making of the movie and, like, the Beatles phenomena. Yeah. Because I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool if... Because there's already this thing going on in Yellow Submarine where they're the Beatles in the real world. And then they travel to Pepperland and find their own doppelgangers who are Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. So there's, like, this other version of the Beatles, and they're like, hey, we're, like, alternate reality versions of each other. And I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool if, like, the Beatles, like, it starts and we go, like, to Liverpool, and, like, they, you know, he, he arrives in the Yellow Submarine to find, to recruit help, and, like, they recruit the Beatles, but they're, like, the mop-top sort of versions of the Beatles, and then they travel to Pepperland and meet, like, their future selves almost in, like, the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. So you kind of have, like, more of a... Uh, representation of their whole kind of career i guess so you can have like you know these two different versions of the beatles existing in the same place at the same time instead of them just being like oh they look exactly the same except one doesn't have facial hair and one does you know (laughs) um but you know that's just just hypothetically kind of just thinking about it at what point do they like what they refer to, I don't know if they refer to it, but like we were, we've been referring to it as like the real world, like where he goes to get the Beatles, mm-hmm. bring them to, like that's already not necessarily like 
the real world. <laughs> yeah, no. like the whole like hallway sequence and stuff. Where yeah, which they randomly are... do like the kind of Scooby Doo thing where there's like the hallway of doors and there's just random creatures and characters and objects like traveling in between yeah. the doors. And George's car keeps changing uh, yeah. colors. And one thing that was interesting is like I like how each one of the Beatles kind of has this like cool introduction to them. I wonder how like, George felt about his. Because it is kind George's of like... George's was the best. Yeah, but it's like... I feel like it might have been, to an extent, poking fun at the idea of, like, oh, he's the mystical one. He's really into, like, that spiritual stuff now. But it was like so it's so great. Like, But it was cool, because, I mean, like, we, we start on Ringo. And it's funny, because, like, all these Beatles movies Ringo's tend to have yeah. this, like, focus on Ringo. Um, he's the most relatable one. He's just... He's like I mean, the everyman. He's very talented, yeah. but you get the impression he is just this random guy who lucked into joining this band. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he is the everyman of the Beatles. Um, but we kind of start on him, and like he he's in this dark, depressing, dreary world, and he's like wearing these colorful clothes, and it kind of somewhat brings to mind like his scene, the this boy scene in Hard Day's Night, where mm. he's just kind of like off on his own, kind of like kicking the can down the sidewalk type thing you know and so we kind of start on him and then like he's like oh yeah let me get my mates and then john is like the frankenstein monster he drinks a potion and then turns into john which is like kind of strange but is interesting then george i mean he's had such an amazing intro there's like the beginning sitar chords from uh Love You Too. Oh, I thought it was the inner light. Oh. Maybe. I don't remember now. But yeah, it's like the sitar sounds and like it's kinda like this dark world and like we kinda pan up and George is standing on this like mountain and his hair is like blowing in the breeze and it's like, oh yeah. Do it you, it was just amazing. Do you think Yodorowski saw that? And was like, I need him to be the star of the Holy Mountain. Could be. I was just gonna, I was just gonna bring that up. Um, yeah, there's this movie that was made in 1971. It was, it was sure. like 72. I think maybe? El Topo was 70, so Holy Mountain was like 71 or 72. 72 yeah. yeah. Um, Alejandro Jodorowsky was a filmmaker. He made a movie called El Topo, which came out in 1970, and. Um, it's a it's a great movie, an amazing movie. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a mindfuck kind of a movie. Um, John Lennon happened to see it and went on to say that it was his favorite movie, and uh, got in touch with Yodorowsky and was like, "Hey, like I want to help you produce another like your next film." Um, and El Topo was one of the first kind of like midnight movie movies. Uh, during the 70s there's kind of this like underground film kind of movement where like these theaters were showing like these midnight screenings of these movies that like wouldn't normally get like major play I don't know during regular hours where Pink like Flamingos was a bit Pink Flamingos uh, Eraserhead a, a few years later the the Godfather of them all but not the Godfather the the queen of midnight movies Rocky Horror Picture Show mm. Yeah, and then Eraserhead and um, all these kinds of just, like, bizarre movies that you can't fit anywhere else. Yeah. And, but they were getting a lot of uh, 
popularity in midnight screenings. Um, El Topo was kind of one of the first ones that started off the 70s. Um, so yeah, anyway, John Lennon wanted to help him finance his next film, which turned out to be Holy Mountain. And Holy Mountain is this movie that's kind of... The main character is this very Jesus Christ-esque figure. Um, I mean, he looks almost exactly like him. Sort of traveling through this strange, bizarre world of... I mean, how do you explain Holy Mountain? <laughs> I'm not going to try. <laughs> um, but it was very... It's a very, like, kind of philosophical... Rel- look at like religion and spirituality and just like mysticism and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, Jodorowsky's first choice to play the lead character, this Jesus like figure was George Harrison. And, um, would have been a perfect fit. I mean, he, he looked the part and, uh, you know, was already famous for being that the one who introduced Eastern mysticism to, uh, the West to an extent. Um, and George Harrison was on board. He said, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do this. Um, only one thing. <laughs> There's this one scene in the script that, uh, you know, I'm fine with all this other stuff, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy stuff that is required of, of this, of this role. Um, he's like, I'm fine with it all, but there's this one scene where this woman would be wiping my butt, um, cleaning my anus. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not down with that. I, I, I don't really want to do that. And that was a deal breaker for Yodorowsky. And he said, all right, well, you know, I'll find someone who does want to do it. And, uh, yeah. So that didn't happen, but it could have happened. Ringo would have let them do it. <laughs> yeah he just wants to please anyway so yeah there's that shot in uh in yellow submarine of him standing on the summit of a mountain that could be somewhat reminiscent of uh it does bring to mind holy mountain and then paul's introduction and then paul's introduction is just kind of like he just shows up with a bouquet of flowers and that's and it's just like oh he's the pretty one yeah. and he has that sort of like cocky attitude mm. that they're poking fun at which i i like that the beatles even towards the end when they weren't getting along and everything, they could still poke fun at their own images and stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing is, um, there was a project that was in development a couple years ago. Um, Robert Zemeckis was going to remake Yellow Submarine uh, using motion capture and computer animation. As is his style. Yeah. Um, what? It seems like that project kind of fell through or it didn't obviously it didn't end up happening but how would you feel about that indifferent i guess i feel like that's his thing that he does maybe not anymore since i guess polar express and christmas carol weren't the hits that he expected Hmm. um well polar express has some legs to it actually i've it seems like over the past year i've heard a lot of references to polar express and like kids especially saying like it's one of their like favorite christmas movies or like huh. it's it's a movie that like a lot of people have grown up with um because it's, it's an older movie at this point and like i don't know it's it, oh, it has true. become somewhat of a christmas classic 
but maybe it wasn't as successful when it first. Came I mean, I out, think but. I think the the issue was not that they didn't make money, but that they cost too much money to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is the problem when anything bombs the way that it does most of the time. But I mean, Robert Zemeckis is he's made good movies. We mentioned Back to the Future. <laughs> Back to the Future. It's <laughs> one of the twelve greatest movies ever made. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my sister. Um, she teaches eighth grade social studies and they were going to watch a movie at the end of the year this year and they were going to watch American Graffiti. Um, but then the teacher, the other, the person she co-teaches with decided like, well, you know, it does have like a little bit of nudity and there is a scene involving like a student having sex with a teacher. So let's not watch that one. So they ended up watching Back to the Future because I guess the kids this year were very like anti-history and like they definitely didn't want to watch any like old movies or whatever. And what's weird is none of them had heard of the movie. None of them had heard of back to the future. But then we did the math and like, this made us feel old, but like I figured out when my sister was in eighth grade and I was like, okay, so they, those kids are to back to the future as you are to movies that came out in 1968. And I asked her like, when you were in eighth grade, how many movies from 1968, did you know about or had you seen and like all she could really come up with was like night of the living dead <laughs> i might have known about um 2001 a space odyssey through um at, at the very least through just like some of the the cliches from the movie i guess yeah you know like the the song at least, and, like, the the monolith and the monkeys and stuff. But do you think you could have named, like, ten movies when you were I'm in probably grade? Probably not. Probably not. So, yeah, I mean, but, like, but, like, but, but, I mean back, <laughs> but back to the future is, like... But we're getting old. That's... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... Well, when did Back to the Future come out? It was 85? 85. I mean, I wasn't even born when Back to the Future came out. Now I feel really old. I was, I was in eleventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so the, oh. the the yeah remaking Yellow Submarine in CG. I mean, now is it he wants to do a remake like take this movie, this nineteen sixty eight animated Yellow Submarine movie, and remake that, or does he just want to take the idea of a Yellow Submarine and a bunch of Beatles songs and do his own? I mean, I, I would think it would probably be like kind of like take loosely take like the plot of Yellow Submarine and the idea of Pepperland and the Blue Meanies. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, the Beatles coming to Pepperland to save them or whatever. Probably take that idea and like probably like adapt the art style of it to like computer animation and probably do it in three D. So that's creepy yeah, because I'm just be he's weird. just gonna take John and George can be in it then. Yeah. If he can get those rights to their images, then they're there. They they can get people to do impressions of their voices. Yeah, and it's not like that and, would be like sacrilege considering that the first movie didn't have they weren't even the voice actors anyway. So I mean, it's like you're going to recap But they had their anyway. go ahead and like the right. Beatles were okay with yeah. it. But now you don't know. You I mean if George's widow, I think Olivia. Is, yeah, Olivia and Yoko Ono if they sign off on it then and I wonder if, like, Paul and Ringo will just throw on some, like, uh, one of those motion capture suits. <laughs> Ringo would do it. He's eager to please. 
Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I watched Give My Regards to Broad Street a couple weeks ago because we were doing Beatles movies and I wanted to like watch some. Um, and it's not a good movie. Mm, I've never seen it. I'd never heard anything good about it. Um, give a give a brief overview of what it is for people who may not know. All right. Well, Paul McCartney, who wrote the screenplay and produced it, um, plays uh, a British musician named Paul McCartney, <clears throat> and he, uh, you know, he's got he just recorded an album. And they've got to get like the the master tapes or whatever to to the to the music people. And uh, but they're they're missing. Somebody has absconded with the tapes. And if they don't find them by midnight, then <laughs> their music company will be taken over by businessmen. Wow, sounds that's, like that's quite how a that's how they word it on the back of the DVD by <laughs> businessmen <laughs> and um, men in suits with cigars. It's he, uh, yeah, and he he plays a lot of music in it, and it's got the same issue I had with Yellow Submarine, where it's just too many songs in a row. Mm. Like you find out, like oh, the tapes are missing. This is gonna be a problem. And Paul's like, yeah, we gotta find these tapes. I gotta go to the studio and lay some tracks down. And he does three songs, two of which are Beatles songs. He just does do new versions. And Ringo's in the studio with him at the drums. And I guess like behind the scenes, Ringo didn't want to play on the Beatles songs. He's like, we did that. That was twenty years ago. We don't need to play those again. So like they had it written in where like at the, they're about to start playing. I think the first one is here, there, and everywhere. He does that and yesterday in that scene. And like Ringo's like Ringo goes to start drumming and Paul's like, Oh no, no, use the brushes for this one. And he's like, Oh, I gotta go find them. And they just start the song and the whole song it'll cut to Ringo and he's just like rooting around in his stuff to find his brushes. <laughs> and then he finally finds them and he sits down to play and then he's he just kinda shrugs and like throws him away. And then when Paul plays like a newer like wing song or something, then he joins in with the drumming. And Ringo is an actual like character throughout the movie, as are uh um Barbara Bach and Linda McCartney. Is George in it? Uh, no. And there are some parts where I wish that they had just, like, had uh, George and, uh, well, not John, because, you know, it was 1984. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they had George just, like, play, like, some random guy. But it just it just kind of plods along. And I feel like it's, like, an hour 40-something minute song. And I Ooh. feel like if they just sat down and been like, okay, every time he plays a song, let's just have him do one song. Right. They could have cut out like half an hour, and it would have been not still not like a a great movie, but it wouldn't have been such a chore to get through. Yeah, and that's and that's a shame when like listening to Beatles songs becomes a chore. <laughs> Oddly enough, one of the most interesting parts in it to me, all, all the reviews I read hated this part, but I really like it's like this like fourteen minute version of Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> fourteen minute version. They do the actual song, but then it goes into this, like, long instrumental thing during which, like, Paul's daydreaming, and it's, like, he and Ringo and their wives are, like, out canoeing down the river in, like, Victorian times, <laughs> and then Jack the Ripper's there, and it's... 
Um, I don't know. It's but it's definitely a, a problem of uh, ego. It, mm. It's a vanity project. Paul wanted to just be like, I'm going to make a Paul movie, and he he did. I don't know. And that's interesting. Eleanor Rigby. One of the little sort of factoids about that song is there's there's the lines about Father Mackenzie. And originally the lyrics were Father McCartney, hmm. um, which is funny because you mean you brought up the fact that like he's playing a character, a musician called Paul McCartney in this movie, and he had kind of written like, even though like the in Eleanor in the context of Eleanor Rigby he was referring to his father, yeah, um, but to an outsider listening to it it would have just been like oh he wrote himself into his own song like that's kind of weird. Um, there are there are interesting bits in it. Um, another interesting part was they do a version of uh, Silly Love Songs, but they do like an 80s kind of new wavy version of it, and they're all kind of like... They've got weird makeup on, and their hair is all like styled like Flock of Seagulls, sort of. <laughs> wow. But also, like, there's little things like... They're in the studio... And the producer's like, you ready to go? And you look and you're like, wait, is that? It's George Martin playing George Martin. And then I didn't know until the end credits. I don't know what the hell he looks like. But the engineer was Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer on like all like the later Beatles albums. Like, I think he started on Revolver. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. But it's 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 to get to those little parts. You gotta. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Wade through the muck. Yeah, well, maybe one day we'll actually watch that movie proper and talk about it. Um, I think we're actually going to cut our Beatles month short. I mean, it was supposed to be Beatles month. May was supposed to, well, no, actually, June was supposed to be Beatles month, um, but that's not what's going to be the case. Uh, We've done two episodes, but we've covered four movies, so I feel like that's, you know, we did fine with that. Yeah. Um, but I had fun talking about the Beatles and thinking about them. And there's still so much to say, so... Yeah. Next time we do Beatles, we're still going to have tons of shit to there, say. Yeah, there's plenty of other movies that we could do. So maybe, like, maybe next year we'll do some, some more Beatles stuff. But anyway, thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. All together now. 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 All